Are you a scaling SaaS founder? Ready to make the leap from leading a team to leading an organization? Join us each week as we refill your think tank with actionable tips and strategies from great business minds and those who don't know yet. This is SaaS Fuel with your host, five-time entrepreneur, SaaS founder, and globetrotting adventurer, Jeff Maines. Welcome back to the SaaS Fuel podcast, where disruption is the norm, growth is the goal, and cheese is spreadable. I'm your host, Jeff Maines. I hope B2B SaaS founders like you grow from traction to scale. Your growth is more than just numbers. It's about crafting a future-proof company, premium valuation, and leaders who build a business of significance while living epic, adventurous lives. I spent the weekend with a dozen exceptionally smart SaaS leaders in a private mastermind. Half of them I've worked with for a long time and half were new. And we had some really deep conversations about what they've built and where they're headed next. We spent some time focused plotting their journey from five to 10 million and on up to over a hundred million. And you might think that a lot of what we talked about was revenue, people, processes, and that kind of stuff. And some of it was. The core conversation was about them their personal story, their perspective, their path, and specifically their growth. The person who built a $10 million company was not the same person that built a $100 million company, not even close. They chose to grow, expand, stretch their capabilities, and do things they didn't know how to do, and step boldly into the unknown. Dark? Yes. Scary? Of course. That choice changed the trajectory of their business and in their own lives. They became different people, upgraded, better, faster, stronger. In the SaaS world, the market is always in motion. Leadership cannot remain static. The status quo just holding that is going backwards. And the journey of scaling a company is inextricably linked to the personal growth and development of its leaders. And as the architects of vision and culture, leaders must continuously push beyond their current boundaries, challenging both their limitations and limiting beliefs to forge paths for expansion and innovation. The essence of leadership development is not just about acquiring new skills or strategies, but about evolving one's mindset and capacity to lead effectively in a complex, dynamic environment. It's about transforming challenges into stepping stones and viewing growth as a perpetual horizon. We're always chasing it. Here's how leaders can cultivate continuous growth and lead their companies to scale. First, it's about embracing a growth mindset. The foundation of continuous leadership development lies in embracing that growth mindset. The leaders who view their abilities as evolving constructs can better navigate the complexities of scaling a business. We have to continue to evolve because the world is evolving around us. And it's about seeing potential in every failure and getting feedback as a blueprint for improvement. And this mindset encourages leaders to venture outside of their comfort zones, fostering innovation and resilience. The opposite of that is somebody who already knows everything already. And you probably know somebody like that today. And at best, they will be a bottleneck in their business. And at worst, they'll destroy it. It's not really a happy thought. So keep that growth mindset. 
Two, we want to make sure that we're seeking diverse perspectives. Last week, I talked about diversity, and it's a lot more than just the way somebody looks. But growth often comes from exposure to new ideas and viewpoints. And by actively seeking out diverse perspectives, leaders can challenge their preconceptions and just expand their understanding of what's possible. Some of the best ways to do this are engaging with peers from different industries, joining a, a scale-up accelerator so you're around that, investing in leadership development or executive education, or simply fostering a culture of open dialogue within the organization. The goal is to turn the leadership journey into a mosaic of insights, each piece offering a unique contribution to the larger picture. And number three is to cultivate self-awareness and emotional intelligence. We've done entire episodes on emotional intelligence and how important that is. And at the heart of effective leadership lies a deep understanding of oneself and others. And I think it's important that we have both of those. We have to know ourselves and other people. But the, the thing we focus on so much is knowing other people and we forget about really knowing ourselves and understanding that and pushing past what are those limiting beliefs? What are the limitations that we've placed on ourselves? And continuous development requires leaders to hone their emotional intelligence, enabling them to manage their reactions, understand their team's motivations, and navigate the interpersonal dynamics with empathy and clarity. And the level of self-awareness is crucial in creating a culture that values growth, collaboration, and resilience. The trajectory of a company's growth is a reflection of its leadership's willingness to evolve. And if they're not willing to, then that trajectory is going to be stunted at best and downward, uh, most likely. Their commitment to change is so important. It transforms not just their company's strategic direction, but also its culture by embodying the values of learning. And one of my favorites, curiosity. The journey to scaling up is as much about personal transformation as it is about strategic execution. By committing to continuous growth, challenging limiting beliefs, and embracing the lessons embedded in every challenge, leaders can unlock new dimensions of success for themselves and their companies. Now, I really appreciate the tenacity of leaders like my group this weekend who dare to grow and push those boundaries refuse to give in to those limitations. You know, they take captive those limiting beliefs and say, no, this ends here. I'm moving past this. And the future of their companies is in very capable hands. Our expert last week was Andrew Bartlow, founder of Series B Consulting. We talked about how scale-up tech leaders can be more strategic and more successful. Also got his take on building a contagious culture and the current HR landscape out here in Sasslandia. Our founder last Tuesday was Sahil Patel, CEO of Spiralize. We talked about how to take big swings and get big wins to optimize conversion. Outstanding insights from a two-time CEO. If you miss either of those episodes, go back and give them a listen. My guest today is James Roth, Chief Revenue Officer of Zoom Info. James orchestrates the company's revenue strategies across sales, customer experience, and partnerships. His background's really unique as he started his career as a sales rep and rose through the ranks of leadership, which is a very challenging thing to do because of the different skill sets needed along the way. Prior to Zoom Info, James led the successful transition at Vonage 
from a consumer VoIP provider into an enterprise communications platform with over a billion in business revenue, culminating in a multi-billion dollar acquisition by Ericsson. Welcome a data-driven sales leader, James Robb. Hey James, welcome to SaaS Fuel. Hey Jeff, thank you so much for having me. Tell me a little bit about your background and how you got to your place at Chief Revenue Officer at Zoom Info. It's a crazy sales journey. I, I usually start from the beginning because my pathway into sales was, I think so many, not normal. So yeah. I was actually, I was a football player in college. I was actually about a hundred pounds ago. I was an offensive lineman. And with no real delusions of grandeur to go play in the NFL, I did the logical thing. I, I lost 100 pounds, grew my hair out long, moved to Los Angeles and, and tried to be a professional musician, which while a ton of fun, you know, right around that time, 2009, 2000, you had social media platforms, you had all these folks that had huge followings on their MySpace, not to age myself, but we, we didn't have that when we flew out there. And so after about six to seven months, of trying it. I was a studio musician by day. And then at night we would go try to make it, if you will. I had this realization that I didn't necessarily like the fact that talent and hard work didn't necessarily equate to success. There was a couple of folks that were older than me in college and they were super talented. They were living in a van. They were playing everywhere that they could play and they were still just doing that. And they were a, a bit of a cautionary tale for me. And I said, you know what, I don't really know if that's what I want to do. And so my thought at the time was maybe I'll get a sales job by day and then be a musician at night. And luckily I got great advice from, from my dad at the time saying, listen, I don't care what you do. If you want to be a musician, great. If you want to go start in sales, great. But don't try to do both because you'll end up just mediocre at both of them. You'll be an average salesperson because you think you're going to get famous at night. And you won't be working as hard with the music because you'll be doing the sales thing by day. So just pick one and go all in. And the company that I was interviewing with at the time, which had an LA location, had just launched an East Coast location. And that's where I started. So that was my journey into sales. And it's always funny. People talk about SDR being the hardest job in sales and it's so difficult. And I started as an outside sales, door knocking, B2B sales rep. And my first territory was a very dangerous part of outside of Washington, D.C., and I think I was the only guy stupid enough to be knocking on doors in that area, given how high the crime rate was, and I was in a suit and tie knocking on doors, and I actually found a lot of success because it was so infrequently touched, and I felt a lot of times business owners would be like, what are you doing? Come on in here. What? Get off the street, and so found some success there, and you know, that was really my journey into sales. It was a sort of a managed service cloud early days of cloud hosting, cloud communications. It was going all in one for small and mid-sized businesses. And I spent about five years there. <clears throat> Again, started as a door knocker and then was successful doing that. Took on a management role, spent years doing that, then took on a director role, spent a couple of years doing that. And we ultimately sold that company to a larger company. And I saw a lot of folks do very well financially. And I said, I want to go to a small company and grow it into a big company because so many folks did so well doing that there. And so I left after the acquisition and there was a small company that was a competitor of ours, call it about a hundred employees at the time. They were a regional player and they were about to get into growth mode, start expanding throughout the country and really starting to become a, a real player in the space. So I left, I went there as a head of sales. And so very similar, heavy outside sales, bootstrap, 
not a big company. And we grew that to about 300 employees. By the time we sold that, it was about seven locations. And we sold it to a, a company called Vonage that some are familiar with. It was a legacy sure. voiceover IP company. And they had these amazing cash flows from the residential business. But with the iPhone and a bunch of folks in my generation not necessarily having a home phone line, they started putting that cash to work, acquiring enterprise SaaS companies to become a real enterprise communication platform. And I actually stayed there for the better part of eight years. Really liked the vision that they were taking in an all-encompassing communications platform. They had plugged in a new great senior leadership team. And so I stayed there and Again, was a VP of sales and then worked my way through, learned everything that I could from all of these different super smart people and just kept taking on more and more responsibility. And so by the time we sold Vonage, which was Q4 of 21, I was the SVP of field and sales operations, things like that. And after we sold that, we sold it to a much larger kind of conglomerate, if you will, with Ericsson. And after having spent as long as I had there, I figured it was time for a change, not only from an industry standpoint, but wanted to get to a company that you know, was more on the SaaS side, was more of a high growth type company. And I, I interviewed with several and I had the biggest of the big. I was looking at AWS. And then again, think back to Q4 of 21, there was a lot of really small funded, going to be the next $10 billion IPO companies. There was a bunch of those and Zoom Info was right in the middle. They had just gotten to about a billion in ARR. And they had a tremendous IPO and they were just a, having a ton of success. And I think most importantly, why I chose that aside from the, the size at the time, but also I'd been a Zoom Info customer for a decade. If you think about the door knocking, heavy outside sales, you have to knock on the right door, get past the gatekeeper, hope you can find somebody that's quasi interested in what you're saying. And you have right. no idea who you're asking for. You're literally just knocking on doors. I remember when we first deployed Zoom Info to our salespeople, it was like, oh my God, I don't have to go knock on doors blind anymore. This is amazing. And so I had always had a, a great respect for the product, for the, we had Rain King, we had Discover Org, we'd had Zoom Info, we'd used all of them. And around that time when they had rolled them up, they were such a powerhouse in the space that our whole sales team was on them. We were using their data in a variety of different ways. So I figured I could go there and have almost an immediate impact because I knew the product so well. And I think the added benefit, helping go to market, having a CRO or a head of RevOps be our main customer in many examples, I get to talk about on a day-to-day -day basis what I think about on a day-to-day -day basis, which is how do you drive go to market more efficiently? How do you increase win rates? How do you get higher top of the funnel? And so if I had gone to one of these other companies where they were selling financial services software or HR software, I'd almost have to fake my enthusiasm in terms of I don't wake up at two o'clock in the morning thinking about my HR software, but I do wake right. up at two o'clock in the morning thinking about my win rates or my top of funnel or things like that. And so it was just a really nice fit for kind of a salesperson, sales leader at heart that gets to sell to fellow sales leaders and talk about solving the problems that we all think about on a regular basis. And I know that's a long-winded way of where I started and, and how I've ultimately gotten here to Zoom Info, but it's been it's been quite a run. Yes, yes. And and I love that, just all the, the different twists and turns along the way. And that's very much the entrepreneurial journey. Nothing is linear. And I think your career path is that same way. It's, there's a lot of changes and some zigs and zags along the way nothing is linear but then you look back and you just see that that pattern over time one success on top of another yeah i tell it to our folks all the time i think <clears throat> irrespective everybody thinks there's like this golden journey 
then I have to do this, then I have to do that, then I have to go do this. And where I went to school and a lot of folks went off to Wall Street or went off to law firms and things like that. I saw that on a regular basis with these like super high flyer, very smart, very driven folks. And it was just like, if I don't get my internship this summer and then I don't go to Wall Street and then I don't do my two years in investment banking, I'll never become a hedge fund manager. That I think it it doesn't really exist, but it's always this circuitous path. And ultimately, I think if you show up and whatever that role is that you're doing, if you learn everything that you can, if you excel at what you're being asked to excel to do, good things will happen and there will be all kinds of doors that open. And I've always just taken the mindset where there's so many smart people in many of these companies that you can learn from. And as a salesperson, I knew how to knock on doors. I knew how to motivate teams. But there were so many things outside of that that all I had to do was pick up the phone and call somebody in FP&A and be like, hey, I don't know anything about FP&A. I barely knew what it stood for. Can you teach me like, what does a P&L look like? What does a balance sheet look like? And what you'll find is that so many people, A, never get asked that. And they always right. love talking about what they do on a day-to-day basis. And so they're super yeah. willing to just educate people that are just genuinely interested. And so I found a lot of my best kind of moves and roles and things like that were just a byproduct of picking something up that ultimately wasn't in my job purview at the time. Of course, you want to make sure you're doing well at whatever they're asking you to do. But then if I had additional capacity, which oftentimes I did to learn more, to figure something out, to go poke at something that maybe isn't in my skill set and ultimately just collect what I always tell my teams, it's like I grew up in the 90s. So I had video games and collect those gold coins, if you will, like your Sonic the Hedgehog. And each one of those little things, each one of those learnings, each one of those nuggets you put together in this overarching leadership, sales, whatever it may be. And it just, it works. And so irrespective of where you go or what role you're doing, you never have to have that imposter syndrome of, I don't know what I'm doing. And when you don't know what you're doing, you're just, you're open about it. And you're like, hey, I don't know this. Can you teach me? But you've made a transition that I think is really difficult for a lot of people and that you went from an individual contributor role to a, a sales leadership role to senior management, now chief revenue officer. How did you make those transitions and what kind of personal growth did that take uh, in order to switch? There are multiple things that you have to change from selling, knocking on doors years ago to, to where you are today. How did you grow into that? And was that something that was conscious or did you just take it one step at a time and yep, every step? Yeah, so it's a great question. Especially, I think the hardest transition is individual contributor to any type of people leader. Because you go from literally caring about one person. And I had a, a friend of mine always says, you go from one headache to having multiple headaches. And I think <laughs> a lot of times people will take that jump because it's either a pathway to more financial success or they think they should. And I think, especially in the SaaS space and the enterprise SaaS space, you can have great individual contributors that make an incredible living doing what they do best, which is staying in the individual contributor ranks because not everybody is gonna wanna take on those additional headaches. Now, from where I sat, I always knew, just from a personality standpoint, I always did like the concept of leadership and. There was a couple of early things in my career that I really wanted to get into it because I felt like coaching, developing, training, and helping others to see success, something that 
I was really passionate about. And so when I took over that first frontline manager job, that was the biggest, I think the biggest challenge in my career, because you get to this place and the common mistake that I made and so many others make is how was I successful and how can I make them successful? And I always share this one story. I won't use his name. The first team I took over, I had nine door knockers. And I'm, again, former football player. I'm almost 6'4", and I got a loud voice. When I would knock on doors, I'd walk in like I own the place. Hey, Jeff, I'm here to see so-and-so. Let them know I'm here. And that worked for me. Now, in the cloud space, it was a very technical sale. We had hired this gentleman who was from the data center world, super smart, but lacked some of that presence. And so I'm in there telling all these folks to do it like I did it. Walk in like you own the place and blah, 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 a lot of gusto. And he wasn't having success. And I'm like, why isn't he successful? He's super smart, way smarter than me. And I went out on a ride along with him. And I learned this very valuable leadership lesson where he walked into the place. And again, just to paint the picture, this guy looked like a 13-year-old cherubim, like curly hair, like very young looking. And he was doing exactly what I had told him to do. But he'd walk but in he and he's hey, like, I own the place. Tell them I'm here. And they, his skill set was that if he got an IT buyer, they could have a four-hour conversation about pulling apart motherboards and understanding all of the technology that, frankly, I had no clue about. And so I learned that lesson with this individual. And I always tell the story because a team is such a diverse background of people. And they're not all going to be wired or driven or have the same skill sets that you as a leader or you as an IC had. And so the ability to find out what their superpowers are, I learned that luckily very early on. And that really got me excited about leading teams and leading more teams and regions and taking on just more and more responsibility because it's not all the same. And in terms of the journey, that was probably the hardest jump was individual contributor to frontline manager. And then I think in terms of excelling through, the one thing I'll always share is that people think there's a shortcut. It's like, hey, I had this great month or, hey, I had a great quarter. Promote me to VP now. Despite a pretty, pretty good run, I still spent three years as a manager. I spent three years as a director. I spent three years as a VP. I spent three years in as, as an SVP. Like when it comes to leading teams or leading teams of teams or whatever it may be, there is no shortcut because you've got to have all of those examples. You learn something new every day about people, about what motivates them, about how do you spot the thousand yard stare? How do you spot the person that, despite being your best rep, isn't super happy? All of these little nuggets come together. And so when folks are like, hey, I was a good manager for the half. Can I be a VP now? But really is, it's all about consistency. And so in any role I ever had, I never looked at how am I going to get promoted? How am I going to get to the next level? I always figured that if I did a great job in what I was doing, for a long enough and consistent period of time, I wouldn't necessarily have to ask. And that, not everybody always follows that rule, but it has worked out well. And I always tell folks on my team that once you get to that level of consistency, you're not going to need to ask. I will be kicking your door down to right. let you know that I want to promote you. And I think that's lost because everybody looks at it as like these short-term sprints, and it's a marathon. Because that amount of learning in 13, 14 years of managing people, and I still learn every single day, whether it's people, whether it's process, whether it's all these different aspects that come into this role, 
if you're not looking at it in that way and it's okay, now I'm here, like how am I gonna get here? It just, you fall short and you never lean into what you really need to lean into, which is you're always gonna come in not knowing 30% of what you need to do and you do the 70% that you know really well at a very high level and then you spend the rest of your time learning that 30% and it takes time and it takes that consistency and good things ultimately happen. I think that's a big difference in people who are successful and who aren't. They may know the 70%, but they're, if they're not successful, they're waiting on somebody to explain the other 30%. And instead of just going and really focusing and doing and being excellent at what they do know. Yeah. And I think especially too, one of the things that like I've learned a lot from great people that I've worked with, I've also learned a lot of what not to do. And I think especially in senior leadership, executive leadership, there's almost this expectation that you have to come in and pretend everything. And I had this great example, again, no names, big outside hire. This was years ago. This is at one of my first companies. And, you know, one, they were a huge internal promotion place and they made this big hire from the outside. And in the first three to four months, like that's when you're new, you got to take advantage of learning from everybody. I don't know your product super well. I don't know your people super well. That is when you can take advantage of that. Hey, I'm the new guy card. And this individual didn't really do that. It was a lot of oh, big corporate stuff. And ultimately, after those first three to four months go by, then you lose that ability to be like, hey, Jeff, I don't know what the heck you just said. And so then you're almost relegated even further because you don't right. have that knowledge that you should have. And that, luckily, that was probably like three or four years into my career. And I was like, I don't ever want to do that. I'd rather overplay the I'm dumb card so that I can learn. So again, having been at Vonage for eight years and plus the company that they acquired, I hadn't been at a new place in over nine years. And I remember joining Zoom Info. And despite having a good handle on the product from being a user, I grabbed all of the smartest people I could find. And I was like, I want a one-on-one -on -one with you every day for the next 60 days, because I didn't understand half of what you just said in that meeting. So treat me like I'm a third grader. And I'll, I, I will say this guy's name because he's great and he's very close, but Amit Rai, he was a founder of one of the companies that we acquired and he was our head of data as a service, unbelievably brilliant guy. And we'd get on these meetings and he would say things, acronyms or all sorts of just, and I, I literally was just writing them down as fast as I could just to be after the meeting say, hey man, what does any of this stuff mean? And he was great because again, to that point, nobody ever took the time to ask him, what does all this right. mean? Right. Don't dump your big brain into my little one. And so he was so happy to do it because somebody was showing a general interest. And so he literally took me from understanding our SaaS application, which I did as a customer, but this data as a service model I had no idea what it was. And that is our biggest selling product is people centralize data and they want to just ingest all of these different signals and data points. He was the one that brought me up to speed. And it was, again, in my first 60 days. And it was, it was so impactful for me to come in early and know that stuff. Whereas had I just been like, oh, I'm this big outside hire and uh, gusto and all that kind of stuff, I would have been the guy that was relegated to my office to be like, I can't go meet customers. I can't go talk to our people because I don't really fundamentally know what we do. Really good. Taking the, the experience of somebody else. And you're exactly right. They don't get asked those questions very often. And when you do, they're more than willing to have those conversations because it's something they're excited about. You're asking them about their expertise and experience. And, and that's a great opportunity for them as well. Yeah. People love talking about 
their personal experience and their their superpowers, which is great. And you get to take advantage of that, whether you're talking to a CFO and you want to learn more about their realm, they're always very happy to share it with you. And the, the feedback that I'll give to my teams is don't do it for a gold star. If you want to go learn more about the financial side, come with a point of view. Do some homework beforehand. Don't just say, yeah. hey, I want to get credit because Roth told me I should go meet with the CFO and walk in there, teach me finance. Read. Right. There's, it's the greatest time ever to learn stuff. You've got YouTube. Yeah. If you're a visual learner, you can read things. You can go to Investopedia. You can buy books off Amazon that show up in an hour. You can listen to them. Like You've got podcasts. There's so many amazing ways to learn. And so every time I would do something like that, I would basically say, I don't want to show up really dumb. And so I'm going to read as much as I can. I'm going to consume as much as I can. So I'm going to come with thoughtful questions so that when I do get a time with the CFO or I do get a time of our head of FP&A, they know that I've done the homework and it's not starting from zero. It's maybe starting from the 40-yard line. And right. so that's all the advice I'll give. And then when you show them even more that you're interested in their superpower and you've done some pre-homework, then they really open up. And it's, I don't know, I think it's, it's one of the best ways when people say, hey, how can I get ahead? So many people want to, but how many people are actually going to go do that work, I think, is what separates the good from the great. If you could use some fresh perspective from fellow B2B SaaS founders and advice from an on-demand CXO team, check out Champion Leadership Group. It's the ultimate resource for SaaS founders to continue to develop themselves, scale their companies, and never walk alone on the journey. We're kicking off a new growth accelerator scale up this month, and I would love for you to be a part of this cohort. If you're stuck at your current revenue level, this is for you. And if you feel like the world's best kept secret, we've got your back. And even if you're doing well, but you know that your company can shift into a higher gear and scale faster, this is definitely for you. I mean, now is the time to elevate from success to significance. You'll gain access to a fractional C-suite team, a community of scaling SaaS founders, and the SaaS fuel operating system proven to make your business world-class and increase your valuation. It's time to upgrade from traction to scale. Learn more at championleadership.com, where leaders evolve and companies transform. Apply to join the next cohort, championleadership.com. And that's where you come up with the genuine interest because you have that, you've done the homework, you've, you know something, you're not coming in cold, and you are asking intelligent questions. And you do have a point of view, so it becomes a conversation, not a just give me everything you got. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. But you've been doing this for, for quite a while. How have you seen the role of revenue teams change you know, over the last 10 years, 20 years? Certainly, I, I think things have changed a lot even in the last five years. Yeah, it's a great question. And again, back to where I started and a little bit of back to the knocking on doors piece. You think about hiring, we used to hire 80 people every two weeks and maybe 10 wow. to 15 of them would stick around. And you think about the inefficiency of outside sales, knocking on doors. You could have a firm that is literally in a buying cycle that would love to know more about your product. But with a strong gatekeeper or a strong receptionist, you may never deliver the value proposition and they may never know you exist. You think about how inefficient that is and how much luck and timing and again, back to that charisma to get past a gatekeeper. That's where I started. And that I always liken that to you've got the full field to go. You literally get out in your territory 
and you've got to go from end zone to end zone with get past the gatekeeper, find out who's important, find out what they're looking for, find out if they're in contract, all of these different things, like literally end zone to end zone. And I think the the transition that I've seen five years, 10 years, 15 years, is that as you get, again, using a Zoom info, and I, I talked about why that was such an integral part of us, it allowed us to completely change our go-to-market from what was a heavy outside sales team into much more of a thoughtful, again, using signals, using things like intent, using things like, hey, James just got promoted to CRO. We call that key contact tracking. All of these signals where someone is in market and who is in the buying committee, and you've got all their information, if knocking on a door is going end zone to end zone, you think about that using something like a Zoom info, you're basically now on the 50, 40 yard line on the other side of the field because you take all of that wasted effort. So I've got, okay, intent is surging. I know that there's an audience that's looking at our particular products. I know who there is looking at it. I also know who's important in terms of, hey, is CRO, is it CMO? What are their phone numbers? Like I've got all that information that I would have had to knock on a door probably 10 times just to gather some of that information. Then you throw things like technographic information. I know who they're in contract with. I know who their CRM providers are. You take all of that data. Now, all of a sudden you're in the red zone. And so now all you've got to do is be able to get to that right person. And you've got so much more information about what they're excited about. We call it signal to action where we're trying to get that even further into the goal line offense is we're now starting to harness the generative AI capabilities of saying, okay, in our data, we've got what we call an earnings call cube, where we basically will index all public company earnings calls, all of their press releases, all of that information. You've got all of the first party data from CRM and the conversations that we've had with them in the past and who's connected with whom. And then you've got these signals like James just gets promoted to CRO. That's a signal. Here's all the things that they're saying in Zoom Info's public releases that generative AI can do what a sales, a good salesperson would have taken them five to six hours combing through 10Ks, combing through 10Qs. You see exactly who's in the buying committee. You can then pipe in all the first party data to say, oh, hey, Bill talked to James six months ago. This was their conversation. Generative AI can bring and amalgamate all of those data points together and then have an articulate point of view in terms of what to go do with it. So <clears throat> thinking back to the end zone to end zone piece, If you can have that, where you've got these meaningful signals, Zoom info, just IPOs, or hey, they raised $100 million or whatever it may be. Some of those are incredibly powerful signals. They've got all of this intent data coming in that they've got all these people searching. Here's everything they're saying in a public forum. Here's what you should go say to James. And we've gotten it to a point where it's, you've got the signals and we've got the prescriptive action Generative AI writes the note for you, puts together the call notes for you. And so if you think about being a salesperson, like that's the evolution. And so I think it's that unbelievable unlock of efficiency where you can get so much more time and capacity when they're not just doing some of that unnecessary homework. So that's that's probably one of the biggest shifts that I've seen. And again, our customer base, we've got almost all the Fortune 500. We've got some of the biggest and brightest companies out there that are centralizing on all of this data. And so I get to hear what they're doing. And I think it's one of the most fun parts of my job where not only, yeah, they're using all of our platform, they're using these signals, they're having their salespeople go act on them. 
I think to answer your question in a forward-looking standpoint, where we're seeing the market now going for like the next couple of years, outside of just the signal to action prescriptive, this is what you should do. We're also seeing this centralization of all data. So you've got companies like Snowflake and Databricks and AWS, where they can house so much data. And then you take machine learning and generative AI on top of it. And the things that can be done with a great data foundation, we're learning new things every single day from that. And so what I would say the most forward-looking sort of tech advanced companies are doing is they're centralizing all that first-party data. They're centralizing all their CRM data. You've got conversational intelligence, which is now becoming, it's everywhere. Every sales has one, Zoom has one, we have one. Salesloft has one, Outreach has one, but it's become kind of commoditized, to be honest. Clary's got one. Almost everybody has that conversational intelligence tool, but you think about the volume of data that you get from live conversations, from CRM engagements, from things like email, from all of that first-party data, and then you take all of the third-party data from a provider like a Zoom Info or others where you can get all of these additional data points. If you put all those together in a Snowflake or in an AWS, and you've got this amazing volume. There are so many things, especially if you run certain matching algorithms over top of all that data, our biggest customers, that's what they're doing. So they're almost building out their own platform with all of the best third party and capturing all of their first party. And then they're using generative AI to serve those things up. And so again, the way I see it is smaller companies that might not have all of that they'll use more of the signal to action piece where it's like, hey, here's this platform. Here's what we think you should go do. But as companies move up that maturity matrix and they have the ability to go deploy Snowflake or they have data science or data analytics folks, the things that are happening in terms of just serving that straight to the salesperson, they have their ICP, they've got all these incredible data points. And with their specific knowledge of what they need to go do, what they're doing with that is really cool. So I I wish I could give more specifics, but obviously NDAs and things like that. But I think those are the two that are, I think, going to take sales to the next level. And I will say the elephant in the room that everyone always asks about is, do we think Gen AI is going to displace all these salespeople? I think the answer to that is no. Now, are certain orgs going to need to have thousands of folks that are just doing outbound prospecting? Probably not. I think they'll be able to redeploy those in certain areas, but without question, regardless of the football field analogy, you're still going to need someone that can deliver that value proposition that can help guide them through. I look at it as just this massive efficiency gain of taking what's inside of your best people's heads. Every sales org has their top 10 best, 10% best people what they're doing, how they're doing it. They're reading the 10Ks, they're tracking all their executives, blah, blah, blah. If you can automate that, reverse engineer how they're being so successful, automate that through workflows and signals and things like that, all you're going to do is just make your bottom 80% that much more efficient and you can basically figure out how many you truly need. So I don't think it's ever going to put sales like out of business because people do enjoy having that consultative approach, having a partner that they can reach out to for those particular things. But you're not going to see the volume of this huge outside sales group that's literally hoping they knock on the right door at the right time. Again, back to my first company, 80 people every two weeks with about 15 of those still there. there. Wow. 
Yeah, I think you're exactly right. It's not going to replace you know, sales. It, it's definitely going to change sales as we know it. And I, and I love that analogy of instead of end zone to end zone, now you're, you're in the red zone. And so it's, it becomes much easier. And so you don't need all of the, the people doing all the other stuff because that, that can be automated. And I think that's really, that's the data-driven approach. And we hear about that in the market, but so often it's not, they say we're a data-driven company and, and Zoom Info is absolutely that way and helps other companies become that way. But I think a lot of companies may think that they are, but they're not really. Yeah. And I think that's, to that point, you have some that might be using some sort of generative AI on top of their CRM data. And I don't think right. there's a rebel person on planet earth that would say, Hey, my CRM data is amazingly clean. It's all accurate and up to date. <laughs> all the salespeople put everything in properly. So maybe they're using a portion of that. Maybe some have gotten pretty advanced on the conversational intelligence. And that technology is amazing, at least, and not yep. a shameless plug, but at least like for us on Chorus, we have a Chorus call and I get a five to 10 bullet point generative AI summary that says exactly what we talked about, what the next steps are, and then I can go action on those next steps in an automated fashion. You have some people that are centralizing there, and then you have some people that are just centralizing on the third-party data aspect. I think the companies that will really dominate over the next three to five years are the companies that are leveraging all of that data. Yes, and yes, so and putting it together. Exactly. Everything has value, but you put that together and it's exponentially more valuable. A hundred percent. And so the ability to enrich the CRM, the ability to make sure that's clean, and then taking the fresh off the press data from a conversational intelligence call where it's like, hey, CRM may say this, Zoom Info may say this, but literally just got off the phone with Jeff and just today they announced that such and such happened. And maybe that comes via third party. Maybe we get that to you in a scoop. Maybe there's a key contact, but taking all of those things together, the companies that are leading are the ones that are using and bringing together as much data as possible because that is how you get an edge. And so right. we are finding ways every single day to help unlock those things. We've got this open sourced, uh, we call them Zoom Info Plays, where depending on what your ICP is, depending on what you're, if you're in X industry, who are the people that you really want to sell to and what are those best plays? And we're constantly bringing together some of these firms to open source what are the best sales plays in their respective groups, because we get to see it. We get to talk and 37,000 customers as of, as of late, but like we get to talk to all of these folks, big, small, advanced, antiquated, and everything in between and find out what their best people are doing. And we've really assumed this role of a go-to-market partner where it's like, hey, what's working? What's not working? How can we advance this? We actually acquired a company that's we built out like a, we call it Zoom Info Labs, but it was, it's like a consulting side to say, hey, how do you go with a data-driven go-to-market approach? And we're seeing a ton of success there because again, people... People don't want to just buy a product from a vendor. They want to be led. They want to have a point of view. And frankly, again, especially in a CRO seat, you get back to that 30% of things I don't know. When you talked about the CRO evolving, I'll talk to certain folks and they were clearly in that glory days of outside sales. They might be incredibly charismatic. They might have all the raw, but they might not fully understand a true data-driven go-to-market approach. They can solve for that by hiring a great RevOps person or hiring a chief growth officer, whatever that may be, to augment that skill set. But every single firm is looking to get better at that. And that's, I think, where our value proposition comes in because we get to see it across the board, Fortune 50 companies all the way down to SMB. 
and what are some of them doing that are way better than others that we can go share? Obviously, from an NDA standpoint, we can't share everything. But from a play standpoint, saying this is what some of the best go to markets in the world are doing and we can democratize that across the board. That's the really exciting part. It is. And, and I love that approach because that's one of the things a lot of the companies you work with are, say, two to twenty five million. They don't have a team of data scientists that are that can do all this. And so the key for them is how do they take that data and turn that into an actionable plan? And I think that's what those plays really do to say, here's what's working for the best of the best, and you can take this and run this play in your organization. A hundred percent. And that's, well, we just had our, our company all hands after the end of the year. And when you look at some of these, again, Fortune 50, Fortune 100, biggest and brightest companies, and they're using tons of our data, the ability to give that same data that they are spending big dollars on and democratize that down to the 2 million to 10 million ARR company. And again, that's the first company I went to after we sold where I started, we were exactly in that cohort. And so any edge that we could have, and if somebody had come to me as a sales leader back then and said, hey, would you like to have the exact same data that companies X, Y, and Z, greatest companies in the world are using? And, oh, by the way, we can give you these specific plays. We can automate them. We can build workflows so that when James gets promoted, you can run an automated play that immediately sends this email that reaches out to him in this omni-channel fashion. And your reps, essentially, if you've got 10 reps right now with 5 million in ARR, you don't need to go hire 100 to get to that right. next threshold. You can make them unequivocally more efficient by just having them demystify these plays. And I, I always look back at it and I'm just like, Having somebody like that that can partner with you to share, and you look at the head of sales of that maybe five or seven million dollar ARR company, they probably started out as salesperson number one. Might have come from Microsoft, or they might not have come from Salesforce. They might have just been door knocker number one that happened to grow into this sales leader role. And you know, those are the, yeah, those are the folks I love talking to because it's hey man, like let me help you with the playbook. I get to see this on a regular basis. Tell me who you guys are. We'll run a large scale regression model on their top 10 or top 100 customers, depending on how big they are. And we can pull all these firmographic data points to say, hey, you thought you were focusing over here. You should really focus over here because this is your sweet spot. And the look on their face, they're like, I don't know what a large scale regression model even is. And I didn't know that all of these different firmographic and technographic data points existed on these companies, let alone can I turn those into specific plays so that when this person, here's my ICP, I thought it was CTO. It's actually not based on all this data. And I've got all this company data to find my TAM and to find out really who's buying our stuff. That's a foreign concept. If you look at some of these smaller companies that might have a product-led founder that's incredible at building amazing product, and they hire one or two sales folks that are good at hustling and hitting the phones and things like that. But there is a gap on it doesn't matter what size you are. SMB and, and that cohort is a huge business for us. All in on that, just how do you democratize a data-driven go-to-market? And you don't need to have 100 data scientists. You don't need to have those things. Just breaking down a good old-fashioned sales play and automating it based on data, you can compete with the best of them. Oh, that is exactly right. 
And we see that all the time, whether it's product-led growth or founder-led sales, and then you're trying to expand out. And so many companies struggle in that area. And sometimes they do have the wrong ICP. Sometimes they, they don't have the messaging quite right. Sometimes it's you can't duplicate the raw of the, you know, the, the charismatic leader, and they need a shift. I think that was really insightful, you know, what you're talking about with the ride-along earlier. And somebody's style is different. And so yep. making sure that, that it's something that can be replicated across the organization. And it's one of the things that I think is beautiful about data is that kind of approach can be where raw or charisma may not be able to be. No, 100%. I think that's one of the things I would always hear early in my career when you had a great team member, or a great individual contributor. It's like, how do we go replicate Billy? And you're never going to replicate Billy. But what right. you can do is you can replicate what Billy does. And right. a lot of times, pretty core foundational things. Billy tracks all of the executives that have ever bought from him on this particular spreadsheet, and he's just all over it, super organized. Now, if you look at the, and I'm not going to generalize, but if you look at a lot of salespeople, sometimes organization <laughs> is not their superpower. Even right. updating CRM is hard for them. And so, okay, if that's something that makes this Billy really good, how can we automate that? And so you take something yeah. like key contact tracking, where you get an automated signal, you get an automated play, you get an automated workflow that triggers when you have a key contact move from position to position or company to company. Like that's just one example. Or you might have the former Wall Street type that just wanted to go give it a try in sales and they're ripping apart the 10Ks and the 10Qs and the earnings calls and all of that information. So they get their value proposition incredibly tight when they talk to a CEO saying, hey, on your last earnings call, you said this and this, okay. Not everybody, you put a 10K in front of, again, not to generalize, you put a 10K in front of a lot of newer sales folks, they're not going to know where the beginning right. is. And so the ability to extract some of those things in an automated fashion to say, hey, here are the big three bullet points. Here's where they're doing well. Here's where they're struggling. Here's where they're investing. That's how that person is successful. And so it's really just the ability to find out, or even if you are founder-led sales, what are you doing? as a founder leading sales, right. you're leveraging your network. Okay. What network, who are you getting in front of? What's the value proposition that's resonating? All of those things can be repeated and you don't need to be a founder to do it, but it all comes down to that ability. Again, I think the best thing a sales leader can do is the ability to reverse engineer that success. And I think all of the, okay, Hey, let's look at these KPIs. Let's look at win rates. Let's look at top of funnel. Let's look at bottom of funnel. That's table stakes. Everybody should have that. But the ability to architect a data-driven and a play-driven go-to-market, I think, is what sets apart all of the best sales leaders from the pretty good ones. Because your ability to use all of those KPIs, sure, but then the ability to then scale those plays so that even if your worst salesperson just shows up, those plays are running in the background, they're automated, they're data-driven, the signals are basically informing what should what action should be taken and then they can show up and if they are super charismatic but they might not be the most product driven or whatever it may be great augment that change the action that you're going to run so again i think it's really cool and i think we're at this really exciting inflection point and i think the companies that everybody talks about generative ai and i think so many that i've talked to at least all that really means is we're going to go pay a large-scale consultant, a lot of money to teach us how to use generative AI. People, I don't think, have really grasped the fact that generative AI is wonderful, 
but the data that it sits on top of is what ultimately makes it great or not. And so your inner Matthew McConaughey from those commercials, when you got Salesforce talking about generative AI and McConaughey says, so if that's the case, then is data the new gold? And I really do think data is the new gold and people's ability, both in small companies and large, to basically learn how to harness that data. That's how you go unlock generative AI. Exactly right. I would say data is the, the new gold, but at some point, I think data becomes more of a commodity and how you use that. And it's the action behind it. That's where the, the real gold is. As so I many agree. companies, they, they've got a, a CRM, they have a database that's sitting there and they're not using any of it. And so maybe it's just, maybe it's still in the mine, but it's still gold yeah. that, that has to come out. And at the mining, maybe that's a better analogy. The mining is the process of turning that into action, putting its you know work. What, the way I would say, because it, again, just knowing the data space so well, I don't know if the data truly gets commoditized. I think what I would look at it is like when you mine it, it's gold for a very short period of time, but mm, then it turns yeah. into dust. And your ability to keep mining the gold before it turns into dust, I think that's where on the data side, whether yeah. it's a signal, whether it's a contact, whether it's a company, all of these bits of information are relevant for a short period of time. And then they become irrelevant because they can become stale quickly. And so right. that's where I do think the ability to continue mining it and the ability to keep, again, not to get too technical with it, but those, the ability to match all these different data sets. Because again, CRM, first party, conversational, third party, company data, person data, all of these different things, they tell a story. And I think to your point, the ability for folks to understand what that story is and to make sure that all of those data points are relevant at that given time, the action is important, but the underlying data that is informing the action, if not clean, if not up to date, right. you, again, you think you about running wrong action on top of just like a basic CRM instance that might not be super clean, you're going to be pissing off a lot of people. Because yep. you're going to be emailing somebody's old email address. You're going to be emailing me at my last company. You're going to be emailing a competitor, a value proposition. That's my personal favorite is when our comp competitors <laughs> will send stuff. And I'm right. like, you should probably look at this. And again, that's where I think you've got this incredible power of generative AI that can automate so many things that are tedious and then go drive that automation. But without the right information feeding into it constantly, you get that spam alert where it's like, Jeff, we're hitting right. you up at your third most recent company. And you're like, are you guys kidding? <laughs> it happens all the time. Yeah. 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 You get to stale data that's out there and something, apparently somebody is, you know, buying a list that's 10 years old and yeah. there's people out there selling that garbage. <clears throat> and they are. And I think that's yeah. what is data is always going to be difficult because people change companies change. And so it's never going to be perfect, but the ability to get it as close to perfect as you can, it does matter. And so again, yeah. you have folks that will look to save a couple bucks and they'll go buy that 10 year old list thinking if it's not going to be perfect, this is fine. This is good enough. And I think one of the things in this new world is that it's not good enough because that's the difference right. of having 30% more in the top of funnel or not. Or that's the difference of pissing off your potential ICP because you're hitting all the wrong people. And so I do think 
What's good for us, what we see is that even in a difficult macro, the conversations that we're having, the customers that are doubling down, that understand how powerful data is, they get it. And so they cannot consume enough of it. And again, we are very good at a lot of different data points, but I would say what the best customers are doing, and again, it's tougher for the small companies because they can't spend as much. But when you look at the greatest go-to-markets out there that do have those resources that have everything else, they'll have, will be one very large part, but they'll also have all these other like niche data providers that are looking at all sorts of different things so that they can have this like incredibly informed point of view. And so the data is the new gold piece. If they're spending so many resources and so many dollars on all of this data, you know that it's a really important and impactful place to be. And so that's where we continue, especially on our journey, to make sure that we can take as many of those data points as we can down into, again, a lot of your listeners in right. that kind of startup, 2 million to 20 million, because if you got to compete with those big guys that are spending literally hundreds of millions of dollars on this stuff, what can you do to get an edge even on a shoestring budget and a bootstrap capacity? And that's where our SMB space is so successful because we get to unlock like we did when I started as a door knocker, we get to unlock a lot of those data-driven insights and build out, even in a on a budget, build out a data-driven go-to-market. That's huge. And I love smaller companies because the big advantage they have is speed. Yeah. And that, that really matters with data is how quickly can you act on that? How quickly can you implement? And so there, there's a big advantage there. Totally agree. Totally agree. Yeah. And they're a lot of fun to work with too, because they they have a super cool product and they just need some help with go to market and we get to help them with go to market. Then we get to watch them grow exponentially and they become big customers in a pretty short period of time. That's a ton of fun too. That's awesome. Where can people learn more about you and specifically about Zoom Info? <clears throat> yeah, it's a great question. I would always implore anyone that, again, you want to learn more about me, find me on LinkedIn. Zoom Info is growing. We're hiring. So happy. Shoot me a note. Always happy to connect. And then on Zoom Info, again, I would just go to our website, zoominfo.com. It's got all of our information, all of our platform, fill out a form, we'll follow up with you. I will say that, again, that is a big signal too. People that come in, they fill out a form, they go to a pricing page. We will have people following up in an automated fashion. So just a word to the wise, that is a great play for us. So yeah, that's where you can find out more about me and that's where you can find out more about Zoom Info. It, that's fantastic. And that's a, a pretty good tip. If you want to learn how some of the best companies prospect, go to Zoom Info, fill out the form and watch the process. You want to see a play run and, and understand how that works and what that feels like on the other side and how, how good a process it is. Go do that and experience it. Yes. Yes. And we probably err on the side and I, we do, we probably over prospect a bit because we know those signals are happening. And so I will say to all of your listeners, we are working on that making sure that from an omni-channel perspective, we are hitting all the touch points when our customers want them, meeting our customers where they are. But again, to that point, in 2021, you make a lot of phone calls, you're probably going to sell a lot of stuff. And I think as the market got harder, just making those tweaks, I always liken our go-to-market like a machine. And if you've got a machine that's purpose-built for 2021 and you don't adjust it for 2023, you're not going to be successful because the time and the landscape has changed so much. And so that's where I, what I'll finish with is just all of these things. It is a constant evolution, constant yeah. A-B testing. What's working? What are our most impactful plays? Is it funding? Is it pricing page? What segment? What industry? 
all of those things should be top of mind for revenue leaders, sales leaders, founders, et cetera, all the time, because what might've worked nine months ago probably is going to work different now. And the ability to pull those levers and change those dials, again, somebody might not want to be called a hundred times in this day and age. You might want to move towards customer centricity. So you can take all of that data driven approach. You want to go protect the customer base, which is a big thing that we've been doing where it's, you look back at 2021, it's a lot of, let's go find new stuff. Let's go land new customers, new growth, et cetera. You get a lot of firms that have changed. So, Hey, for new business right now, it's hard. And so we're going to do everything we can, but more importantly, let's go focus on growing our customer base. There's a whole set of go-to-market plays for that. There's a whole set of health scores, firmographic data, all of these different things that can inform like a CSM motion. And so again, it's all, as, as you can probably tell, I could sit here and talk about this all day. It's a ton of fun, but constantly be evolving, constantly be tweaking the go-to-market because you'll find sometimes accidentally, sometimes through A-B testing, sometimes through new data points, that you can go drive exponentially more revenue or more customer centricity, whatever it may be, in just tweaking those different dials. And again, having data at the foundation of it is super helpful. Outstanding. That's great, great advice. James, thanks for being on SaaS Fuel. Jeff, thanks for having me, man. I really appreciate it. Thanks again, James, for coming on the show and sharing your journey and insights. You can learn more about James and Zoom Info at zoominfo.com. As always, all links, highlights, resources, and full show notes are available at sasfuel.com. And be sure to check us out on YouTube for full video episodes, shorts, training, and more. If you're a thought leader, and if you're listening to this, I'll bet you are, please take a minute and share the episode with your network. They will appreciate the recommendation and your status will bump up a couple of notches in their mind. And the team and I really do appreciate that because it really helps us grow the show. So everyone who shares this week will get the Challenge Compass, courtesy of Captain Jack Sparrow. This is no ordinary compass. It points you toward your next personal growth challenge, ensuring you're always moving forward, not in circles. Join us next Thursday on our SaaS Fuel Expert Series, where my guest is Brady Jensen, a founder who solves the trust problem between marketing and sales. Now, if you've ever had an experience where reality doesn't match the playbook, this one is for you. And then next Tuesday, we have founder Michael Kamleitner, founder of two SaaS companies in the marketing and social media space. We're talking about creative ways to scale up without outside capital and how to gracefully transition from an engaged operator to an empowered leader. He's made a great transition there. I will see you next time. And as always, enjoy the journey. Thanks for listening to SaaS Fuel. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned are available at sasfuel.com. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com slash sasfuel. We'll be sure to read these out on future episodes. Let's go!